0: You can be seated for a moment. We're going to share in communion. And um, it's just so... I didn't know when I went into this little two-week series that we were going to be doing communion today. But, man, it's, it's just so appropriate because it's funny. Last week, we talked about the recipe for spiritual failure. And this week, we're talking about the recipe for spiritual success. And it started as, at a Passover meal. And... Um, and the, the character that was, was who we studied in failure is the conduit for who we're studying for success this week. Um, but before we get to Acts chapter 10, we want to share in communion. And we want to think about um, really the, the two elements, and not just the two elements of the bread and, and of the wine, but the two elements that Scripture tells us we're celebrating. And one is the sacrifice of Christ. And his body and his blood broke, and his body shed broken for us, his blood shed for us, on the cross. And that's what he has done. And this morning in the 9 a.m. service, I was just just off the top of my head, just thinking about how unlikely it would be for somebody if you said, "Do you know Dave Gregg?" And they're like, "Yeah, but but there's probably I don't know 50 Dave Greggs in this country or more." And you said, "Well, he's from South Florida." Well, that narrows it down. Maybe there's maybe there's five. And you said, well, his social security number, and I'm not going to tell you what that is, um, is this. And, and he grew up on Melrose Circle and he went to Nova High. What would be the odds it would be anybody else? Just, just five pieces of information would be almost nothing. And Jesus literally fulfilled dozens and dozens and dozens of prophecies about his, his coming in the flesh to be the savior, including his, matter of fact, there's even a prof, prophecy about uh, his, his wrists and his feet being pierced a thousand years before crucifixion was invented. And so, but there's, there's another prophecy left unfulfilled and we also celebrate that and that is his return. So I'm not a betting man, but if he, if he fulfilled all those dozens and dozens of prophecies about his coming the first time, I'm pretty sure he's gonna fulfill the ones about him, him coming again for his church. So as we take and share the bread, and if you'll just, if you'll just bring that, uh, just get that one out. The Bible says that, and, and Paul's speaking to us, he says, I received from the Lord, so this came directly from Jesus, what I also passed on to you, the church. That the Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, that Passover meal that we talked about last week, He took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it, and He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, for take the element of the bread. Bless you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Hours later, at the end of the Passover meal, this is in the same way after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this is the cup, or this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul says this, Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Thank you, Jesus. Worship. If you'll join me now in Acts chapter 10, I'm gonna share a story here that includes our quote unquote failure from last week. Acts chapter 10, verse 1 says, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who was called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. If you will, just leave your Bibles open. We're going to be returning to Acts 10 and into Acts 11. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, we want to ascend and we want to elevate, Lord. Not just as a church, but individually. We want our homes to reflect Jesus Christ. We want our marriages, our lives, our ministries to reveal Jesus Christ in these last hours. Father, we see the darkness encroaching. And Lord God Almighty, we don't want to simply retreat. We want to shine brighter. And I ask, Father God, that by your Spirit and through your Word and joined together by the body of Christ, your will will be accomplished in this place and in your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. When we're young, um, it, it, it almost seems like the world is a completely different world. Everything is always getting better. Right? We're, we're getting stronger, we're getting taller, you know, and, and then suddenly life changes. And, you know, when you're young, I, you know, you get out of the shower and you go by the mirror and you're like, yeah, right? Now I go by the shower and it's like, iti, iti, e-. But scripture tells us that even while the old man is fading away, the new man is being renewed. Scripture tells us that it's God's desire to bring us from one level of glory to another. So that even while the inner self is deteriorating, even while the flesh is, is you, you, we, we see our, our organs and our, and our, you know, our muscles, and, and they're not as strong, and they're not as healthy, and, and, all, and like Paul said, in my flesh dwells no good thing. But I am not my flesh. When Paul would look in the mirror, he did not look in the mirror and the reflection was Paul. That was the car that Paul drove around. That was the vehicle that he drove around. But he understood that's just something I'm inhabiting. C.S. Lewis says, you do not have a soul. You are a soul, right? You you are a soul. And and that soul can be either renewed and built up or it can stagnate and deteriorate. And the shame is that sometimes I'll go to a church, maybe I haven't preached that in 5, 10 years, and I'll see people and they haven't moved spiritually in all that time. And what it tells me is that even though God gives us the prescription, and even though God gives us the elements for growth, even though God gives us the ability to come deeper and deeper into His favor, it's not automatically going to happen. And you're going to see that as we go through this passage, that what God is giving us is the recipe for spiritual success. But we have to put that recipe together. So let me give you a couple misconceptions about, as we start about what we're talking about. Because discipleship is the process by which we become more like Jesus. Salvation is necessary, and that is God's domain, and we are saved because the Spirit reveals Jesus to us, and we say yes to Him, and we become saved. I, I got into an argument with somebody saying, yeah, but, but I believe in irresistible grace that God just kind of overwhelmed you and made you receive Him, because if you had to say yes, he, that, then that means that you're getting some of the glory. And I said, nonsense. I said, if my little child comes to me and says, Dad, what's what's 5 plus 5? And I say 10, right? The child doesn't get the glory for having the right answer if he writes down 10 or she writes down 10. But if she writes down 11 or 15, then that's on the child because they had the ability, they had the knowledge, they had the answer given to them, and they rejected it. And it's the same with us. God reveals himself to us We say yes to Him and that's the beginning of our relationship with Him, the covenant with Him that we enter into that Jesus just spoke of, this covenant in my blood. But discipleship is the process by which we are made ready for heaven. Grace is that element that allows God to work on us in our broken condition. You know, we just went through COVID and you would go into like an emergency ward and you would see people what head to toe, even doctors, and they would have these suits on that covered their faces. And and, and what it did was it allowed them to work on a diseased patient without them being affected by the disease. Now, God cannot fellowship, God cannot intermix with sin. Grace is the substance we are wrapped in that enables God to work on us. But that process of discipleship is what makes us ready for the world to come. We're not ready for that world few weeks ago, I used the illustration of moving to Mars and a company, you know, if the, if the world was going to blow up and we knew it was going to explode in five years and, and there was a company said, look, I can make you ready to live on Mars so you can breathe that atmosphere and you won't be, a, 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 you won't be affected by the radiation. It won't kill you all the dust, all the things that could kill you on Mars. We're going to change you. A couple things happen. First of all, yes, you become more and more ready for that world, but as you become acclimated to it, you become less and less at home in this world. That's what should be happening to us as Christians, that the more we're made ready and the more we're changed and the more we're shaped for the world to come, the less we are at home in this world. And that's why the Bible says we're strangers. We're aliens. These were people who had given themselves completely over to the Lord and they experienced that directly. So we have to understand that works is not the same as earning salvation, because like I said, salvation is a free gift of God, lest no one should boast. But secondly, the process of salvation is something entirely different from the experience of salvation. That's why the Bible says that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's not a one-time event. It's a process that begins with that event but continues on until we stand perfected in the presence of the Lord. I think of the woman with the alabaster jar of perfume. Ask her if her works didn't get God's attention. Ask the woman with the issue of blood if pushing through the crowd didn't change her situation. Ask Zacchaeus if climbing a tree didn't get Jesus to notice him. Ask the man born blind if he thinks that shouting at the top of his lungs, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, made no difference to his situation. Ask the Cyril Phoenician woman whose daughter had a demon, who the disciples said, just leave Jesus alone. If her persistence and willingness to humble herself changed things between her and God. I don't know about you, but if you're a woman and, and you go to Jesus asking for help and he calls you a dog, like a lot of us would be like, man, I'm going to go find me a new Messiah. Uh, you know, I don't know what's wrong with this guy. But Jesus, she goes to Jesus and she says, Can you help my daughter? She's Syrophoenician and Jesus says, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now she had a choice to make at that moment. She could get offended and walk away, in which case she's still in the same situation and her daughter's still afflicted, or she could humble herself and, she, and that was the choice she made. And she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And I just imagine Jesus smiling and looking up going, good answer. For this, you, you, you receive what you desire because you are willing to humble yourself. Because you engage the process of God, because you were willing to do what it t- took to come into the favor of God, she received the blessing of God. And we see this pattern throughout Scripture, that there is a process by which we can walk in the favor of God. Look, if you want your marriage blessed, if you want your ministry blessed, if you want your children to walk with the Lord, some of us, sometimes I talk with Christians and they're like, you know, I, I, I seem like I'm doing everything right. I'm going to church. I, I'm, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. But I just can't seem. And what's happening is the process has been interrupted in their life and they're not receiving the benefits. And the illustration that I use regularly is that of a, of a garden hose if it's hooked up to a water source and the water source is fully open but at the other end nothing's coming out you're not gonna look at it and say man this this is broken you're not gonna say they must have turned off my water you're immediately gonna say somewhere something is interrupting the flow there's a kink in this hose that is interrupting the flow let me tell you what the source is still as strong as it's ever been the mechanism by which God puts the blessing into our lives still exists But if you're not experiencing it, maybe it's because you don't have all the ingredients at work in your life. And God gives us the prescription here in Acts chapter 10 for what that is, how we can can get there. So I wanna ask you a few questions as we get into what we're gonna talk about. And the first is, if God had already made up his mind in each of these situations to intervene, in other words, if he was already gonna heal the woman with the issue of blood, if he was already gonna save Zacchaeus, why include the actions of those individuals? See, we don't know what they had for breakfast. We don't know what they, what they were wearing. We don't know a whole lot of details. But Scripture does include the actions that they engaged in that immediately preceded the blessings of God. I don't think that's by accident. Second question is, if their actions did move the hand and heart of God, is it likely that God only included these things in Scripture for lost people Or is there a more expansive biblical principle that that applies to all of us? And lastly, if these components present in the lives of the people separated from God or under the law moved God's hand to bless their lives, how much more would would it affect God if if these elements were present in the lives of those He has already redeemed? In other words, if these things were powerful enough to get God's attention in lost people, how much more effective do you think they'll be in saved people? Let me give you a couple of scriptures real quick. Romans 5.10, Paul asks this question. If while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall shall we be saved through His life? Right? If while we were enemies, the death of Christ affected us this powerfully, how much more now that we're in covenant with Him, now that, as John says, we're children of God, should that power affect our lives? Listen to 2 Corinthians 3.9. If the ministry that condemns men, meaning the law, is glorious, meaning it reveals something about who God was, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness, the grace, the covenant that we're under now? So what I want to do is I want to show you six ingredients in the Word of God for securing the favor of God. There are people in this place, you're looking for a blessing, and I hear it every week. I hear it every week. God, I, God, I just need you to, to, to bless my marriage. Or I need you to, to touch my home. I need you to, to help my kid. I, I need you to break me free of this addiction. Whatever it is, you're seeking God's favor to be present. And, and some maybe you've been told, hey, you know, if you just send a check to brother so-and-so's ministry, God will bless you. And it didn't happen. Because if you're not following the prescription of the word, you're not going to walk in the blessing of the Lord. You know, I think it was King David. King David wanted, rightly, to bring the ark into Jerusalem. He was the new king, and he says, you know, the ark of God should be now in the capital city in Jerusalem. David took the city of the Jebusites, and and they wanted to move the ark in. Prior to that, it had been captured by the Philistines. And the Philistines began to experience some really bad stuff. They began to have an infestation of rats, rodents and also tumors. And a lot of scholars think that these were actually hemorrhoids. So it was a very uncomfortable situation for them. Um, And so what they did was they made each of their, the five cities of Gath, each of them sent an offering of a rat, a gold rat, and a gold tumor. They're Philistines, don't blame me, that's just what they did. And they sent the ark back on an ox cart. Alright, and so the Jews saw this and they rejoiced. And so when David wants to bring the ark into Jerusalem, what does he do? He sets it on an ox cart. And a man named Uzzah goes to steady it when it hit a pothole and he was struck dead because God in his word had told the the Jews, this is how you are to move the ark. Now the the ark symbolized the presence of God. So there is a right way, guys, to handle the presence of God. And David was not handling the presence of God. And the Bible says that he was afraid of the Lord and he, and he sent the ark away for months because he didn't know what to do until he got into the word and he saw the prescription for what to do. Many of us, we want God's favor and we want God's blessing, but we keep like feeling like we're beating our head against a wall and I just can't seem to secure it. And it's because, let me tell you something, the enemy is trying to keep you blind to it. We're going we're gonna to talk about that as we go through this. But let me submit something to you. I believe that the principles for walking in God's divine favor are so definite and established that God displayed them in the lives and situations of various people to demonstrate the fact that they are simply cause and effect, meaning they are separate and distinct from salvation, but they are also unquestionably effective. I'm not a name and claim it guy. I'm not a guy that thinks we should exist for more and more blessings and more and more stuff in our lives. But I do very strongly believe that God wants His presence moving through His people. I do believe as we look in this hour and we see all the things, yes, it's easy to get scared. It's easy to get disgusted at what's going on around us. But the Bible tells us that we can, look, we can either retreat, right, just kind of wait for Jesus to come, or do what Scripture calls us to, and that is to shine like stars in the darkness of the universe. And that's what the people of God are called to do. God wants to move through you. He wants to bless you. He wants to use you. He wants you to be an example to the world around you. Just as Israel was a light, and Isaiah says they were a light unto the Gentiles, God wants to make us, His church, a light to the people around us. So they are just as real, just as immutable as the law of gravity. And the first ingredient, and, and I don't want you to miss this, because Cornelius... We just read was not saved the angel said send to him so that you can receive a message through which you can be saved but these principles still moved in God's hand in his life when Peter was explaining one chapter later if you still got your Bibles open you look one chapter later and Peter is explaining what happened and he says in verse 12 of chapter 11 The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with him. These six brothers also went with me and entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. So the first principle that we have to recognize, the first ingredient for spiritual success, is that Cornelius was operating in the order of God. If you look at verse 2 of chapter 10, he and all his family were devout and God-fearing. Not saved, but they were devout. They were sincere in their pursuit of God. Because if there's no order in the home, if there's no divine order, there is no blessing. Cornelius' house was ordered in such a way that God could move in it. And just because you're saved doesn't mean your house is operating so as to empower God's blessing now I grew up my father was not present and he was a guy you know looking back I understand a lot more he was a combat veteran he was seriously suffering from PTSD he would rage and he would drink and so my parents split up and I didn't have any model and when I came to Jesus Christ one of the first things that God did was send three men into my life so I could enter into relationship with them and see what it would look like Because people can teach you all day long, but a picture's worth a thousand words. Once I could look and see their marriages, once I could see the way uh, two of them were pastors, and I could see, I ended up on staff on on one, and his church had grown from a couple hundred, few hundred to like 1,500, and I could see the way he operated, and you can see prayer, and you can see their, their devotion to the Word, and you're like, okay, I get what I need to do. And so my wife and I, from the time we were married, we would, we would just nine o'clock at night, we would just kneel down and pray. And then we had our first daughter and she was in the little carrier and we were praying next to her and then they grew up. And, you know, so even now today, my grown kids, if they come over 30 years old, we're all kneeling down at nine o'clock because as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, right? That's just, that's just non-negotiable, right? Even if they walk away from Jesus, they understand. It's amazing. Billy Graham was kind of the opening act for a guy named Charles Templeton. And Charles Templeton was the, you probably don't even know who he is, and isn't that sad, but he was the guy, he was the preacher. And both of them were at the same time had a crisis of faith, and Billy Graham has talked about how he just wrestled overnight on a park bench and came, to, came out the other side saying, God, I don't understand everything about your word, but I choose to trust it. Templeton rejected. He walked away. He became an atheist. Years and years and years later, Billy Graham heard that he was beginning to suffer from, from Alzheimer's. And he went to his house to visit him. And he asked, they were about to sit down to a meal. And he, and he asked, imagine Billy Graham asking, is it okay if I pray? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so he said, certainly, certainly, go ahead and pray. And as he prayed and he, and he asked Jesus to bless it, this man said something interesting. As he talked about Jesus, he looked at Billy Graham and said, I miss him. He had decided it wasn't real. He had decided intellectually. But he had been far enough in his relationship with Jesus. And here's two men who choose two totally different paths. And one was a path of blessing and usefulness and fruitfulness. And one was a path that led to him being forgotten. And all of us, we have to make sure, God, I want to order my life in such a way that you can bless my life. It's not about whether I love Jesus. It's not about whether I I, I go to church. Am I ordering my life so that you can bless me? It also says that he was God-fearing. We live in a culture that talks about, you know, kind of Jesus is my homeboy. I am am thrilled that Jesus calls me friend. I'm not diminishing that at all. But, But Paul... Who And it's the same word. Jesus said, I no longer call you servants, but it's the same word as slaves. It means doulos. The the, the word is doulos. And Paul uses that same word when he says, Paul, a servant or slave, a doulos of Christ. Now, if anybody knew about the friendship of Jesus, it was Paul. And yet he humbled himself because he wanted to make sure, as a matter of fact, Scripture says, the fear of the Lord, it's a gift to us to keep us from sinning. So that even when my flesh wants this, even when the crowd is saying, go this way, even when all my friends are doing this, I have something in me that reverences God so much that it keeps me from engaging in that sin. It's not a question about whether you're saved. But ask yourself this. Do you think the devil decided once you got saved to just leave you alone? I'm just going to leave him alone. I'm just going to leave her alone. Absolutely not. If you were the devil and you knew the recipe... In God's Word for spiritual success, you knew the formula for moving the heart and hand of God to bless His people. Wouldn't you do everything you could to negate those people being able to walk in it by removing vital, necessary ingredients? And that's what is happening in the church today. We're seeing these ingredients, and we're going to talk about those a little bit, but we're seeing these ingredients being removed. And one of them, the Bible tells us, is that Cornelius gave generously. In other words, it cost him, he gave sacrificially. And Jesus made it abundantly clear that generosity is not measured by how much you give, but by its proportionate value to you. The widow with the two pennies, who was an example of somebody under the law, outside of the covenant, grabbing God's attention, she made Jesus notice because her gift cost her palpably. I think we argue all the time over settled issues like tithing, and we completely miss the point. I, a few weeks ago, I mentioned, Ruth and I were out on date night, and, um, and we saw a family crossing the street, and the little girl, maybe 10 years old, clearly had cancer, and her hair was you know, shaved off and, or had fallen out, and it was just reflexive for us to just join hands and begin to pray for this young lady, because the discipline of prayer was in our lives. The Bible says, discipline yourself unto godliness. I've had people come up to me and say, yeah, see, I don't believe in tithing because I'm not under law, I'm under grace. I said, you got a problem there. Tithing was never a law. What do you mean? I said, if tithing is a law, then prayer is a law. And so is worship, and so is the study of the Word. Because if I go through the law, I can tell you what the penalty was for murder. I can tell you what the penalty was for robbery. There was a penalty for violating the Sabbath. There was a penalty for moving boundary stones. There was a penalty for for assault. But there's no penalty for not, now there's consequence, but there's no penalty. For, for, for not tithing. It is included in the law just as prayer is included in the law. Just as worship is included in the law. Just as the study of scripture and teaching your family is included in the law. Why? Because the New Testament tells us, discipline yourself unto godliness. I had a pastor friend and he had served years and years in Italy uh, in a church over there. And he was telling me a story about a guy who came up to him and said, Pastor, can I talk with you? He said, sure. And they went to his office. And he began to talk. He said, look, I'm really wrestling with somebody, I, I, something, and I need some advice. And the pastor said, yeah, sure, what, what, what is it? And he said, God has been laying on my heart to give a significant gift, and I just, I'm kind of fearful to give. And he said, well, what's God been telling you? He said, he wants me to give 10,000 lira. It's 40 bucks. This guy's been wrestling for weeks, losing sleep over 40 bucks. Why? Because when you discipline yourself, as we have, Ruth and I have in prayer, then when God sends a situation and says, I want you to pray, it becomes. you ever see somebody you know they don't pray because you call on them to pray and they're like, uh, yeah, "Yeah, there was a guy, we were in a men's meeting, and this guy, some, we call him to pray, and he, and he lays hands on him and says, Lord, I'm just tired. And that was his prayer, right? So many times, look, if you're a new Christian, I'm not beating you up. But if you've been walking with the Lord, you should know how to pray because somebody's going to come up to you and say, hey, can you pray for me? And it doesn't have to be eloquent, but it does have to be able to touch heaven. We discipline ourselves unto godliness so that when the Lord says, hey, you know what? Here's this need and I want you to give to it. I spoke several weeks ago, with my son's best friend, and he won the great Christmas light fight. Well, his dad was, he, he died young. He died maybe his early 50s, had a, had a massive heart attack while his son was on a youth retreat. And... Um, and so his son actually devoted all those decorations every year that he puts up to his, to his dad. And there's a, you know, there's a memorial to it and everything. Well, anyway, this guy's name was Joe. And, and Joe, by the way, Joe's funeral was one of the most <laughs> joyful services. Not funerals, services I have ever been in. And just kind of no extra charge for this. But if you're walking with Jesus and you leave this earth your funeral should be a joy because everybody knows where you are. And there's no doubt. I know. I mean, I miss her. I miss him. But man, I know he's in the presence of Jesus right now. That's, that's how vital our relationship would be. But he'd been sick for a while. He'd been out of work. And, and the church had given me a large gift. And I was in prayer meeting one night and the Spirit just told me, I want you to give the... And it was a big amount. It wasn't 40 bucks. It wasn't 10,000 lira. It was a lot of money. And it was easy. There was no wrestling at all because when you discipline yourself, right? I mean, we all know people, they just go to the gym just so they can be Jack, like me, right? So, <laughs> and, and people don't have any respect for that, but if you discipline yourself, because you're a firefighter and you want to save people, you're a soldier, you're an athlete, you want to better yourself at, your, at what you do, people have respect for that, right? As Christians, if we're just asking for gifts and blessings and stuff so people will be impressed with us, there's, no, there's nothing in that. There's nothing of value in that. But if we discipline ourselves so that giving, so that worship, so that prayer, right? We ought to be able to come into the house of God on Sunday and our worship be so real from what we do the rest of the week that even that person who's sitting near us who isn't into worship gets encouraged and gets excited. And I hear guys, well, I just don't like to sing. Sure, I've seen you at football games. Oh, right? Don't tell me that you don't. It's just you're not excited about the product, right? We get excited about these things. and and, Well, I don't want to look like a fanatic. Sure. I mean, I would see people in like Buffalo and New England taking their shirts off 20 degrees below zero, painting them. I don't want to look like a fanatic. Look, I have never asked you to to come in here, especially you guys, to come in here without your shirts on, painted, right? No, I'll never ask you to do that. But we are to discipline ourselves in worship, in the Word of God, right? Jesus said the Spirit would bring to our remembrance. We can't remember what we never learned in the first place. But if you've ever been in a situation where somebody's coming to you with a spiritual need and boom, all of a sudden the Word just comes out of your mouth. It's because you've disciplined yourself unto godliness. The other thing that Cornelius did, he was a man of consistent prayer. Consistent prayer. He says, he gave generously, verse 2, to those in need and prayed to God regularly. When somebody tells you, well, God doesn't hear the prayers of people that, that, that aren't saved, point them to Acts chapter 10 because he heard Cornelius. It wasn't salvation. But he heard him. But here's where we mess up. We know that regular prayer gets, God's heart, gets to his heart. But we convince ourselves, you know what, I'm not saved by works. I don't need to do all that stuff. First of all, yes, you do. Secondly, I didn't say ritualized prayer. I grew up Catholic. I know how useless just saying 10 Hail Marys or 15 Our Fathers, it accomplishes nothing and Jesus warns us against, us, against it. But I also know, and we've known, Ruth and I have known going through our whole lives... That if we want to have blessing in the next stage of our lives, we need to be building intimacy in this stage of our lives. And we need to be working on a relationship and communicating. And so when somebody comes up and they say, well, how did you guys get the marriage you had? Well, it wasn't by accident. It's because we applied the principles of the Word of God into our lives so that we're able to see the blessings of God work. Look, guys, change is inevitable, but growth is optional. Right? So I've talked with a couple, and, well, she's changed. Well, yeah, you married her when she was 20, and she's 45 now. She's changed. Yeah, duh. Brilliant, right? And what I hear, all, you know, and I don't mean to be stereotyping people, but a generalization means it's generally true. Let's just be honest. And I've talked to enough women who, thought, who went into marriage thinking, I'll change him. I know he's a mess now. Some of y'all nod your heads, and you, you know, or you want to, and you're, but your husband's too close. But... You went into that going, all he needs is a woman's touch and I'll fix him, right? How's that working out for you? Men think she ain't ever going to change, right? We hear all these songs, just, I love you just the way you are. Well, that's great. You're going to love me in 20 years when I'm not just the way I am. So you have to prepare for that how? By building intimacy because you're going to change, but you're not necessarily going to grow. And it's the same thing in our relationship with the Lord. If if you don't believe that spending time together as a couple makes any difference to a marriage relationship, I don't know what to tell you. And if you don't believe that spending time in prayer with the Lord makes any difference to your relationship with Him, I don't know what to tell you either. Cornelius also, look at verse 5. "'Send men to Joppa and bring back a man who is called Peter.'" Bring a, "'A man named Simon who is called Peter.'" Cornelius moved towards fellowship with the body of Christ. Now, here's an interesting thing. We know from Hebrews 10.25 that as we see the day approaching, we should be gathering more and more. We should be getting together more and more as a church. That's the word. That's not my opinion. That's the word. Paul, earlier in that passage in, in, in Hebrews 5 and into 6, he says, "...by this time you ought to be teachers." But you need someone to teach you again the elemental truths of God's Word. Don't miss those words. You need someone. If you are not ready, if Jesus were to come back in in an hour, if you knew He was coming back in an hour, how would that affect you? Would you be joyful? Would you be fearful? See, if you're fearful, if 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 you can't say, I am ready for Jesus to come back. Jesus split the sky, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. If you can't say that, you need someone if you can say that someone needs you and the devil's gonna do everything in his power to keep you away from other people because if he can remove that ingredient he can weaken God's mission on this earth he can weaken our work as the church he understands that we talked about last week that there's actually going to be two versions of what calls itself the church and scripture talks about this Paul says there's going to be an apostate church that no longer receives good teaching and they reject doctrine and they seek after people who will tickle their ears. And I see that in this generation. I'm not going back to that church. I don't like what he said. Did he lie? No. Did he preach something other than the Bible? No. That means you're looking for somebody to tickle your ears and tell you what you want to hear. But Jesus also talks about and Scripture talks about a church that has purified herself as a bride makes herself ready for the groom. And Jesus said, there will be two, and the weeds will grow up among the wheat, and I'm not going to separate them out until the day of judgment. But it makes it clear, Scripture makes it clear, there's two versions of a church growing up side by side. The world may not see the difference, or the world may love to say that the bad version is the actual church. But Jesus knows his people. And Cornelius is moving in fellowship. He's saying, "How can I get closer to the rest of the body of Christ? How can I get close?" And so he says, "Send to send to Joppa and bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter." Because God doesn't just save us, guys. He saves us into his purposes. He saves us into His purposes. And purposes, God's purposes are always inextricably part of the greater vision that He has for the church. I have a good friend. He's a pastor in Mystic, Connecticut. You know, Mystic Pizza, if you've ever seen that movie. He pastors right there. And his name is Bruno. And usually I don't talk about Bruno. <laughs> his name is Bruno. Bruno's an old friend of mine. I've known Bruno for more than two decades. And he has a saying he likes to use. Anything with more than one head is a freak. Anything with more than, if you've ever seen a two-headed anything, it's a freak. God only has one vision for His church, and every single calling that He has for us, all of our ministries joined together, align into that vision beautifully as a conductor brings all these different parts into agreement and, and makes a beautiful melody out of it. That's what God is doing with His church. But they're all playing the same song. Now, if you were to listen to the parts separately, you might not think it's the same song. But when they all come together, then you recognize what the conductor is doing. Look at verse 7. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. What Cornelius did was to act Definitively. He took definite, not simply emotionally. It doesn't say Cornelius intended to get around to obedience. It doesn't say Cornelius went to an altar and expressed to God how much he wanted to do the right thing. It, what it says is Cornelius acted definitely, definitively to be able to accomplish what God had revealed to him. Guys, intentions don't get us into God's blessing. Moving in obedience to his revelation does. I, I know a woman, and she had come to my door. Um, she was just collecting something like we're doing with a coat drive, and, and that was the only time I'd ever met her. And I talked to her maybe a couple of minutes. Well, some months later, I get a phone call from her, and she says, Pastor, and she begins to tell me the story, and it's a sad story. She had been in the church for many years. Her son, 15 years old, steals a car, goes joyriding, crashes, and dies. So she's angry. She left the church. And she calls me up, and she said, um, and I don't even know if she'd gone to that church but she had met me and so I was the guy she called and she said God told me I need to get back in church Mm -hmm. will you counsel with me no I said oh man I mean I'll counsel with you about all that stuff you went through but about that issue there's only two choices you can either obey or disobey and that's completely on you there's nothing I can counsel you, I can encourage you, but you have to make a choice where you are to either obey the Lord or disobey. So she started going to church. And a few months later, something, somebody said something that offended her. It wasn't me at that time, so. <laughs> Usually probably is, but it wasn't me that time. And she leaves the church. Well, a few more months later, I talk to her, and she says, you know, I just don't feel the blessings of God. Well, of course not. Scripture says the steps of the righteous are ordered by the Lord. God gave you one word, one instruction. Go back to church. Further instructions to follow, right? All I want you to do right now is work on your relationship with me. And I know that when I was first saved, you know, I'd always been in some kind of relationship since I'd been about 13 years old, and God said, I want you to just be on your own, work on your relationship with me. didn't have to worry about anything else. didn't have to go save the world or, you know, win some nation to just kind of get on your own and work on your relationship with me. And that's basically what he told her. And she didn't follow that. The Bible says, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. It's not a headlight. We'd like it to be. I wish it was. I wish it was like a bright high beam headlight that, that illuminated, you know, for a mile ahead. It doesn't. It illuminates our steps. They're a lamp unto my feet. So I don't trip and I don't fall. And I have to wait for the next step from the Lord. And she just could not walk in the blessing of favor. And, and, and here's the thing. I, there's nothing I can do to make you desire that. I wish I could. I wish I could just kind of zap that into you. Either you desire for God's favor to saturate your life or you don't. And if you don't, this probably isn't for you. But if you do, you need to understand that while salvation is a a free gift, blessing is often, matter of fact, usually preceded by the actions and activity of man. Let me say that again because you might not have heard that. The blessing and favor of God is almost always preceded by the activity of man. Now, you're saved very simply by the fact that God drew you to His Son. You heard His voice, you repented, and you bowed in authority to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But you cannot find a single place in any of the 66 books, 1,189 chapters, 31,273 verses of Scripture, where it says that God's blessing is unconditional. never says that. It never says that God's blessing is unmerited. From the earliest pages of the Bible... God says this in Genesis 4, 7. If you do what is right, this is before the first murder. And he's talking to Cain and he says, if you do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to master you. It desires to have ownership of you. But if you do what is right, you will be accepted. In other words, you'll walk in my favor if you do what I tell you to do. But if you do not do what is right, God says, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. We don't have time now, but do yourself a favor. Read Leviticus 26. The entire chapter of Leviticus 26 can be summed up by by this. God saying to His people, if you walk in a way that enables me to bless you, I'll bless you. But if you walk in a way that causes me to remove my blessing and instead curse you, I'll do that too. And I know we don't hear that very often, but that's what God tells His people. So I want you to ask yourself some very basic Christianity 101 kind of questions as we get ready to close. First of all, is my house operating in God's order? Is my house operating in God's order? Secondly, am I God-fearing? Meaning, do I avoid things? Do I shut off the TV because I know God won't be pleased with that? Daniel, and I was just talking about that, and I was talking about a show I was watching, and I said, my problem with, with sitcoms is I might watch a few of them, but then one of them comes on, and I'm like, nope, and I'll turn it off, and then I've lost the whole train of what they're trying to do in the sitcom. So, so there's very few shows where somebody's, oh, do you watch this show? you watch Friends? No, sorry. Do you watch the, you know, Two and a Half Men? No, sorry. I mean, stuff goes through the, the culture, and I completely miss it because I don't wanna put stuff into my brain that I know is pulling. Look, I'm not, I'm not ignorant. I'm not fearful of the reality of the world around me. But I also don't go around, drink, putting poison in my steak either. I'm not stupid. And I know garbage in, garbage out. And there should be things. I also know as a, a musician, man, sometimes I'll, I'll listen to a song and I'm nothing. I'm just listening to the guitar part or whatever. But I have a very good friend and she can't listen to the stuff she used to listen to. And she'll tell you straight out, I can't listen to that stuff because she used to be on drugs and she was in an abusive relationship. And she says, every time I hear that, that stuff just floods back in. I don't want it in my life. I'm not saying to make your conviction your neighbor's convictions. But if you don't have any convictions, you don't have any personal convictions, you don't have anything the Spirit has ever told you, don't do that. That's what it means to be God-fearing when God warns you You reverence Him enough to listen to that. Do I give generously? Do I give sacrificially or just ceremonially? Hmm. Am I a man or woman of regular, consistent prayer? Am I walking in fellowship with the body of Christ? Am I moving more towards unity with the body? Think about how often you, you came to church when you first got saved. Scripture says you ought to be going to church more. Are you doing that? Or is your attendance spotty now and then when I have time? Do I act definitively when God does speak, either through His Word, His Spirit, or through those Ephesians 4 tells me He has given to speak over my life? I don't ask these questions to make anybody feel guilty. I ask these questions so that you can know if there is a missing ingredient in your life that God wants you to insert into it so that He can bless you. Every time God brings conviction, it's because he wants you closer to him. It's because he loves you. The enemy is the one who doesn't want you hearing these truths. The enemy is the one who doesn't want you applying these things. I'll never lie to you, and I'll never tell you, I'll never withhold from you something that I know and bless you so can we praise is just gonna minister for like a few minutes and our, our prayer team is as they always are they're they're available after service you have a very specific need you want to talk with somebody you want somebody to pray about a specific need our prayer team is here but for these next five minutes if any of those things are areas where you know God wants you to elevate to a higher level I want to open up this altar and give you the opportunity to just bow before him and like Cornelius act definitively and say God when I leave this place I purpose to walk in that which you have revealed let's stand together if you will Father physically we assume a posture of worship but Lord we know that that's, that's not significant our hearts need to be in alignment with our posture it doesn't matter if we kneel it doesn't matter if we sing if our hearts are far from you So, Father God, I pray for every man and woman in this place who is walking in your blessing. Father God, let us come into agreement, let us come into one accord to create an atmosphere that your spirit moves freely among. But I pray for anyone here today that had one or more of those areas not in agreement with what your word says we should be doing. Father, thank you for your grace to bring me to this place right now. But thank you also for your grace. calling me to the next level. And Lord, I pray that your spirit, as he reveals your will to any one of your children, anyone in this place, Father God, give us the courage to bow before you and say, God, I say yes to you right now in Jesus name.